Hello, my name is Richard Ferner of the University of Warwick. Recent comments by the Leader of the Opposition, David Cameron, have brought to fore a, a new theory of economics which says that we should be focusing on generic happiness rather than um, economic growth. One of the foremost theorists for this uh, new style of, of, of thinking of, of, of economics is, the, uh, is, is one of our own professors, uh, Professor Andrew Oswald of the Department of Economics. Andrew, why on earth is an economist focusing on happiness rather than good old-fashioned money? Well, what else would you focus on if you, if you just wanted one target? Um, it can't be that controversial to say that we should be thinking about having a happy society, a society with a high level of overall psychological well-being. For a long time, economists have uh, focused on economic growth, the, the notion that just by getting richer and richer, we're going to get happier. The problem with that view is that all the modern data points against it and that's partly what I've been working on for some years and I suppose uh, this must be somewhere at the back of David Cameron's speech at the back of this notion that somehow in the zeitgeist now that economic growth is not the key thing we, should, we need a broader concept of well-being. But this goes well beyond the cliche doesn't it that, that money can't buy happiness this is this is a this is proven now by long reams of equations, high-profile academic papers. So where have we been going wrong all of this time? Where have, been, where have we been going wrong? Is um, that, That's a big question. Let me just back up a second. Uh, primarily because of the work by a man called Richard Easterlin, who's a professor at the University of Southern California, we know that if you look over long periods of time... Uh, countries get richer and richer, of course, but measured levels of happiness don't rise. So Easterlin showed this back in the 1970s, and it was ignored for about 20 years. Some of our work at Warwick reinstated it, and, and we take a bit of credit, I suppose, certainly this is what uh, Mr Easterlin thinks, for having revived this general uh, area of research. But the, the data show, this is what we know for sure, that countries don't report increased happiness levels year after year after year as they get much, much richer. Now, what should an economist make of that? It depends on your your view, but I would have thought the, the natural interpretation is economic growth is not working, not in the way that many, many chancellors of the Exchequer have told us since the Second World War. Where do we go from that? I'm not sure. But facing up to that first-order fact, growth does not make countries happier, at least when they're already rich, that first order fact should be at the front of our minds, I think. That's an important point of clarification, though, isn't it? I mean, clearly, we are happier. We can turn a tap and water comes out of it. We aren't going to freeze to death overnight for lack of decent housing. We're fed, we're educated. Um, so money does buy happiness to a certain extent. Yes, but implicitly there, you're comparing to much poorer kinds of societies. I don't know any economist who, who says that we're not better off and happier than a very poor developing country. Of, of course, if you haven't got running water and plenty of food, then you need economic growth. But the issue is, if we just cast our, our eyes around Great Britain or France or Norway or the United States, where roughly speaking, every family has got two cars two and a half television sets, then we have to ask the question, now, in 2006, do we really need any more economic growth? And the data show that, it's, that we probably don't, and certainly, currently, it's not buying happiness.
So what does that mean for economic policy? We don't know what it means for economic policy. It's a shock to economists. None of this is in the textbooks. We, we don't know how to react to it. Um, there's just that brute fact that I've described. The recent data don't show any correlation. They don't show any link between getting richer and getting happier at the level of a whole economy. The data do show that high unemployment is very damaging to happiness and to people's mental health. So we need to avoid very high unemployment rates like we used to have in Britain not too long ago. Growth, well, um, it looks a lot des less desirable than we thought. There is some evidence from the happiness research literature that lower inequality is good, that more unequal societies have lower happiness so on Marxist, average. the Marxists were right all along? I don't think it would be easy to get me to sign up to any version of the sentence the Marxists were right all along, but those people who have worried about inequality were right somewhat. There's a statistically significant effect in the data. It's not very big, this, this correlation between more inequality and lower happiness, but it exists. Is there any linkage here between this and a sustainable agenda? Yes. I mean, surely one of the reasons why Cameron, lots of other politicians, and, and my group, I suppose, one, one of the reasons why we're interested in the links between happiness and economic growth is that climate change and environmental issues are surely massively important by anybody's standard and it's as though different ways of tackling this whole intellectual agenda are pointing at the same conclusion that is if you're very green if you're very concerned about climate change if you read my kinds of happiness equations if you believe in the slowing down uh, the downshifting movement and so on then you're all coming round we're all coming round to the same answer from rather different intellectual backgrounds, that answer being the case for economic growth in the year 2006 in Great Britain is rather weak, rather poor. The nature of this paradigm shift is massive. I mean, <laughs> when I was taught economics, which I would have to grant was many years ago, um, every single fact every single textbook pointed at one thing you had to generate economic growth in order to maintain on to, to maintain levels of employment and in order also to well if not maintain levels of inflation and interest rates and all of that <laughs> all of that economic theory and economic practice which is now accepted what you're actually saying is let's chuck all of that out let's forget about it these these objectives if not these tools are now completely useless to us no, um, that's putting it much too strongly. Of course, we can't throw out traditional economic theory because it's useful for doing things. All I'm saying is that this is not 1956. It's not 1906. It is, of course, 2006 and the case for more material stuff. Another car, a brighter television, uh, the, the case for all of that sort of thing is a heck of a lot weaker than it was 50 years ago or a hundred years ago, we can hold on to lots of traditional economic ideas and accept that the return to us in happiness from more things is now tiny. So give me some examples of what your research has told us about happiness, about the trade-off between money and things that might happen in our life and life events. Most of our work is much more microeconomic in the jargon. In, in other words, most of our, our stuff doesn't look at a very high level at whole economies through time. 
In general, we take big random samples of the population, let's say 100,000 people. We try to measure their happiness or life satisfaction or mental health. We measure their income, their marital status, their age, and so on, their education. And then we look for quite detailed microeconomic patterns. We find that happiness is U-shaped through the life cycle. You start happy in your early 20s, then if you're an average person, happiness dips down. It, it bottoms out uh, at the lower part of this U, if you can imagine a U-shape through the, the life cycle. It bottoms out in your late 30s or early 40s, then it rises on average through the 50s, 60s, 70s and 80s. That's a remarkable finding. It's been replicated all over the world. We don't understand this U-shape. We've looked at the impact of children onto happiness. There's no statistically significant benefit from having children onto happiness. Childless people may know this, but most folk I talk to who have sons and daughters are amazed by that, but it, but it happens to be true. Again, it's been shown in many, many data sets all over the world. Money does buy some happiness. Um, marriage is associated with a lot of happiness. Friendships uh, generate a great deal of happiness and so on. Most of our research is incredibly dull when you get up to the papers and you look at the tables. <laughs> Obviously, I've heard it dis discussed all, all the even possibly more the most sensationalist bits in the last few days on the television. Most of our research would look a lot duller to folk on the television if they got up close to the tables. But, of course, I, I believe that uh, many of the patterns are interesting deep down. Is it true that you recently called for the abolition of Wednesdays? It is true that, in a sense, that I recently called for the abolition of Wednesdays. I've done that a few times. Let me state clearly that I'm not proposing this as a completely serious policy option, but I think it's useful um, as, an as an illustration. You see, what would happen if we gave up Wednesdays in Britain? Well, we'd all have to have leisure time. We'd all coordinate the leisure time, and we would know, because none of us was working, we would know individually that we, as a person, were not falling behind Mr Jones or Miss Smith in the promotion race on our office corridor. That would be a great thing. We could spend more time with our families. We wouldn't have to commute that day. Of course, we'd be less rich. We would give up one-fifth of our income, I suppose, roughly, if we gave up Wednesdays. But there's plenty of evidence to suggest that that might make us happier by slowing down in a coordinated way in reclaiming lots of the things that a more leisured kind of generation could have. So David Cameron is elected in two, three years' time. The first thing he does is he steps up to the to the the board and says, "Today's Tuesday. Don't come in tomorrow morning." Um, presumably, the rest of the world carries on. I mean, my broader question is, how on earth can David Cameron convert this understanding of the latest theory into into policy? I don't know how Cameron could act on this in a detailed policy sense. My basic answer is, look, we're just blue skies researchers. Uh, this area of thinking has only been going in a really sound statistical way for about 10 years, apart from the very early Easterlin, one paper by Easterlin, his work that, that I mentioned. Um, I would like to see, one day, these ideas shape policy, but it's way too early to be clear or, or sensible about how that might happen. I am not proposing in a practical sense that we give up one-fifth of our income and then fall behind, of course, Japan and France and any other country that doesn't want to give up, say, it's Wednesdays. 
I am suggesting that we think about what would happen if we claimed a lot more leisure time for ourselves and our children. Would we really be worse off by giving up some of our income? The data suggests we wouldn't, and we would get a lot of side benefits. Professor, some people, um, Richard Layard at the LSC, are now proposing as a policy to raise taxes to actually try and force people to work less. Is that a reasonable thing for us to be doing? I I don't think that happiness research uh, produces the clear uh, conclusions, say, that Richard Layard, um, my my ex-colleague, has argued. On balance, I'm not in favour of just going to the happiness research literature and saying... Look, economic growth isn't buying greater happiness. Therefore, we should tax British people to the hilt to force them to slow down and make work uh, a poor bargain for them. So they they simply switch to more leisure. I am not saying that. We just haven't reached the point in this research avenue where we can make very detailed policy proposals. I'm willing to think about using taxes in a punitive way to discourage materialism. I'm willing to think about maybe even having stricter controls on advertising if we think it could um, dampen down materialism and keeping up with the Joneses. But I certainly don't believe that the happiness research literature has produced findings at this point where such policies would be justified. The happiness literature is throwing up ideas that are worth debating. It's throwing up in particular the notion that Maybe we should be turning away from the target of economic growth and thinking much more about, well, the quality of relationships, how much time we get to spend with our family, the length of our commutes. Uh, Could we reduce this incredible work intensity that we have in white-collar offices all over Britain? We haven't got to policy conclusions yet. I mean, in fact, many people actually enjoy work, don't they? Lots of people enjoy work. If you look at our studies on job satisfaction... Most people say they're really rather satisfied with their work in Great Britain. They, they enjoy their jobs. However, uh, we also find they don't enjoy at all their commuting time. They don't enjoy their overtime. They don't enjoy not seeing their youngsters uh, uh, in the evening. They don't enjoy missing their sons and daughters' soccer matches on Saturday and so on. So what do we want to do as a society? We want to have interesting, stimulating jobs, safe jobs but we don't want our citizens working so that they're all exhausted, constantly looking over their shoulders, competing with Mr Jones and Mrs Jones about the size of their BMW. But the competition is good for the economy, isn't it? It it keeps us sharp. Competition does have some advantages. It certainly keeps us sharp if the aim is to produce more and more things faster and faster, exhausting ourselves in the process. Yes, capitalism is extremely effective at doing that. But the happiness research literature is saying, look at the data, 2006, it's time to start turning away from a simple goal of economic growth, thinking more broadly and more sensibly about what are the factors that mould human well-being. Professor Andrew Oswald, thank you very much.